I'm your host, Robbie MC, and you're listening to Love and Other Drugs podcast, where we talk about the effects of being in and out of love and all things related to humanity's biggest mystery. Hi, everybody. How are you all doing today? I hope you're doing great. But in case you're not, and it's got anything to do with your crush or how love's been treating you lately, I strongly recommend you stick around for today's episode of Love and Other Drugs, in which we'll go over some of the most common symptoms of the greatest heart-throbbing feeling on earth, love. You might find yourself diagnosed with a serious condition that has been found incurable so far. What are the odds you might be part of the 5% of the world's population dealing with a real condition known as limerence? In other words, have you ever considered yourself lovesick? In today's episode, we'll dwell on its causes and possible treatments and listen to experts' opinions and deliberation towards this mind-bending state. Stick with us! Have you ever fallen madly in love? Researcher Helen Fisher has spent her academic life trying to figure out what's going on in the brains of those who are in the heady, butterflies-in-the-stomach throes of passionate, romantic love. Fisher has scanned the brains of young paramours and found that when they're focusing on the object of their affection, a whole host of brain parts start lighting up. One of the two most important regions was initially a little surprising to Dr. Fisher. First, she found that the caudate nucleus, part of the primitive reptilian brain, is highly active in these amorous individuals. As expected, she also saw the brain areas associated with dopamine and norepinephrine production light up. Both are brain chemicals associated with pleasurable activities and excitement. Around the world, people love. They sing for love. They dance for love. They compose poems and stories about love. They tell myths and legends about love. They pine for love. They live for love. They kill for love. And they die for love. As Walt Whitman once said, he said, oh, I would stake all for you. Anthropologists have found evidence of romantic love in 170 societies. They've never found a society that did not have it. But love isn't always a happy experience. In one study of college students, they asked a lot of questions about love, but the two that stood out to me the most were, have you ever been rejected by somebody who you really loved? And the second question was, have you ever dumped somebody who really loved you? And almost 95% of both men and women said yes to both. Almost nobody gets out of love alive. <laughs> so before I start telling you about the brain, 
I want to read for you what I think is the most powerful love poem on earth. There's other love poems that are, of course, just as good, but I don't think this one can be surpassed. It was told by an anonymous Kwakutl Indian of Southern Alaska to a missionary in 1896. Here it is. I've never had the opportunity to say it before. Fire runs through my body with the pain of loving you. Pain runs through my body with the fires of my love for you. Pain like a boil about to burst with my love for you. Consumed by fire with my love for you. I remember what you said to me. I am thinking of your love for me. I am torn by your love for me. Pain and more pain. Where are you going with my love? I am told you will go from here. I am told you will leave me here. My body is numb with grief. Remember what I said, my love. Goodbye, my love, goodbye. Emily Dickinson once wrote, parting is all we need to know of hell. A 2011 article from Scientific American suggested men and women should think a dozen brain regions for their romantic fervor. They pointed out that researchers have revealed the fonts of desire by comparing functional MRI studies of people who indicated they were experiencing passionate love, maternal love, or unconditional love. Together, the regions release neurotransmitters and other chemicals in the brain and blood that prompt greater euphoric sensations, such as attraction and pleasure. Conversely, psychiatrists might someday help individuals who become dangerously depressed after a heartbreak by adjusting those chemicals. How many people have suffered in all the millions of years of human evolution? How many people around the world are dancing with elation at this very minute? Romantic love is one of the most powerful sensations on earth. So several years ago, I decided to look into the brain and um, study this madness. Our first study of people who are happily loved has been widely publicized, so I'm only going to say very little about it. Uh, we found activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. We found activity in some cells called the A10 cells, cells that actually make dopamine, a natural stimulant, and spray it to many brain regions. Indeed, this part, the VTA, is part of the brain's reward system. It's way below your cognitive thinking process. It's below your emotions. It's part of what we call the reptilian core of the brain, associated with wanting, with motivation, with focus and with craving. In fact, the same brain region where we found activity becomes active also when you feel the rush of cocaine. But romantic love is much more than a cocaine high. At least you come down from cocaine. Uh, romantic love is an obsession. It possesses you. You lose your sense of self. You can't stop thinking about another human being. Somebody is camping in your head. As an 8th century Japanese poet said, my longing had no time when it ceases. Wild is love. And the obsession can get worse when you've been rejected. 
So right now, Lucy Brown and I, the neuroscientist on our project, are looking at the data of the people who we put into the machine after they had just been dumped. It was, not a, it was very difficult, actually, putting these people in the machine because they were in such bad shape. <laughs> and um, uh, So anyway, we found activity in three brain regions. We found activity in a brain region, uh, in exactly the same brain region associated with intense romantic love. What a bad deal. You know, when you've been dumped, the one thing you love to do is just forget about this human being and then go on with your life. But no, you just love them harder. Um, as the poet uh, uh, Terence, the Roman poet, once said, he said, the less my hope, the hotter my love. And indeed, we now know why. 2,000 years later, we can explain this in the brain. That brain system, the reward system for wanting, for motivation, for craving, for focus becomes more active when you can't get what you want. In this case, life's greatest prize, an appropriate mating partner. We found activity in other brain regions also, in a brain region associated with um, calculating gains and losses. You know, you're lying there, you're looking at the picture, you're in this machine, you're, you're, you're calculating, you know, what went wrong? How, how, you know, what have I lost? And as a matter of fact, Lucy and I have a, a little joke about this. Uh, it comes from a David Mamet uh, play, and there's two con artists in the play, and the woman is conning the man, and the man looks at the woman and says, oh, you're a bad pony, I'm not gonna bet on you. And indeed, it's this brain, part of the brain, the core of the nucleus accumbens actually, that's becoming active as you're measuring your gains and losses. It's also the brain region that becomes active when you're willing to take enormous risks for huge gains and huge losses. Last but not least, we found activity in the brain region associated with deep attachment to another individual. No wonder people suffer around the world, and we have so many crimes of passion. Uh, when you've been rejected in love, not only are you engulfed with feelings of romantic love, but you're feeling deep attachment to this individual. Moreover, this brain circuit for reward is working, and you're feeling intense energy, intense focus, intense motivation, and the willingness to risk it all to win life's greatest prize. As Freddie Mercury beautifully stated on crazy little thing called love, it cries like a baby in a cradle all night, it swings, it jives, it shakes all over like a jellyfish, and I kinda like it. How about you? If you've ever been bitten by the love bug, what's the craziest thing you've done for love? Share your story with us. Send me a voice text or a DM on Instagram and make sure to follow the page to get sneak peeks and all the links to the feature pieces from Love and Other Drugs blog. Couples therapists and Harvard Medical School professors Richard Schwartz and Jacqueline Olds hold great knowledge on love studying how it evolves and, too often, how it collapses. We know that primitive areas of the brain are involved in romantic love and that these areas light up on brain scans when talking about a loved one. These areas can stay lit up for a long time for some couples, 
said Olds, an HMS Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital. When we're falling in love, chemicals associated with the reward circuit flutter brain, producing a variety of physical and emotional responses. Racing hearts, sweaty palms, flushed cheeks, feelings of passion and anxiety. Levels of the stress hormone cortisol increase during the initial phase of romantic love, marshalling our bodies to cope with the crisis at hand. As cortisol levels rise, levels of the neurotransmitter serotonin become depleted. Low levels of serotonin precipitate what Schwartz described as the intrusive, maddeningly preoccupying thoughts, hopes, terrors of early love. The obsessive compulsive behaviors associated with infatuation. Being lovestruck also releases high levels of dopamine, a chemical that gets the reward system going, said Oates. Dopamine activates the reward circuit, helping to make love a pleasurable experience similar to the euphoria associated with the use of cocaine or alcohol. Scientific evidence for this similarity can be found in many studies, including one conducted at the University of California, San Francisco, and published in 2012 in Science. That study reported that male fruit flies that were sexually rejected drink four times as much alcohol as fruit flies that mated with female fruit flies. Same reward center, said Schwartz. Different way to get there. Other chemicals that work during romantic love are oxytocin and vasopressin, hormones that have roles in pregnancy, nursing, and mother-infant attachment. Released during sex and heightened by skin-to-skin -skin contact, oxytocin deepens feelings of attachment and makes couples feel closer to one another after having sex. Oxytocin, known also as the love hormone, provokes feelings of contentment, calmness, and security, which are often associated with mate bonding. Vasopressin is linked to behavior that produces long-term monogamous relationships. The differences in behavior associated with the actions of the two hormones may explain why passionate love fades as attachment grows. to the positive feelings romance brings, love also deactivates the neural pathway responsible for negative emotions such as fear and social judgment. These positive and negative feelings 
involve two neurological pathways. The one linked with positive emotions connects the prefrontal cortex to the nucleus accumbens, while the other, which is linked with negative emotions, connects the nucleus accumbens to the amygdala. When we are engaged in romantic love, the neuromachinery responsible for making critical assessments of other people, including assessments of those with whom we are romantically involved, shuts down. That's the neural basis for the ancient wisdom, love is blind, said Schwartz. As one of the greatest latest 90s hymns said, because it's a bittersweet symphony, this life. Love does seem to offer the same kind of taste sometimes. Nonetheless, it makes life worthwhile, and it is everlasting. Scientifically speaking, here's how Dr. Fisher puts it. So what have I learned from this experiment that I would like to tell the world? Foremost, I've come to think that romantic love is a drive, a basic mating drive, not the sex drive. The sex drive gets you out there looking for a whole range of partners. Romantic love enables you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time, conserve your mating energy, and start the mating process with a single individual. I think of all the poetry that I've read about romantic love, what sums it up best is something that is said by Plato. Um, over 2,000 years ago, he said, the God of love lives in the state of need. It is a need. It is an urge. It is a homeostatic imbalance. Like hunger and thirst, it's almost impossible to stamp out. I've also come to believe that romantic love is an addiction, a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well, and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. And indeed, it has all of the characteristics of an addiction. You focus on the person, you obsessively think about them, you crave them, you distort reality, your willingness to take enormous risks to win this person. And it's got the three main characteristics of addiction. Tolerance, you need to see them more and more and more. Uh, uh, withdrawals, and last but not relapse. I've got a girlfriend who is just getting over a, a, a terrible love affair. It's been about eight months. She's beginning to feel better. And she was driving along in her car the other day, and suddenly she heard a song on the car radio that reminded her of this man. And she not only did the in instant craving come back, but she had to pull over the road from the side of the road and cry. So one thing I would like the medical community and the legal community and even the college community to see if they can understand that indeed romantic love is one of the most addictive substances on earth. If you've sang the lyrics to the iconic Nazareth song, Love Hurts, and never thought this is one of the most dramatic songs about it, you're absolutely right. But is there any chance this wonderfully described pain could be a tad more than an ordinary reaction to a heartbreak? Well, according to Robert Sternberg, the leading theorist on all things amorous, in his research, he presents the triangular theory of love, which affirms three key components 
as the foundation for the various types of love we endure throughout our lives. The first side of this triangle is intimacy. Feelings of communication, support, and friendship that characterize warm, loving relationships. The next is passion, which takes the shape of physical feelings of desire. Essentially, the heat and intensity typical of the beginning stages of a relationship. And the third component, commitment, completes the triangle, marking the importance of working through relationship issues and actively deciding to remain devoted to one's partner. According to Sternberg, it's commitment that allows a relationship to sustain itself during fluctuations of passion and intimacy. Of course, no experience is the same for all couples, or even for the individuals within the couple. So psychologists note that Sternberg's triangle comes in countless shapes and sizes, with each of the three components varying in intensity during stages of a relationship. Psychologists have characterized all kinds of different experiences, from empty love, when a couple is rich in commitment but lacks any intimacy and passion, to infatuation, when the passion is pumping but intimacy and commitment are in short supply. Although these are simplistic notions of love, Sternberg concedes that love is a dynamic experience and that each side of the triangle supports the others to form more complex experiences. Typically, a couple familiar with high intimacy and high passion is spitting down the road of romantic love. If this route feels like a high to you, that's because it is! The honeymoon stage of a relationship is marked by feelings of intense euphoria and the release of reward activation neurotransmitters like dopamine. If you've ever found yourself in a trance-like state whereby your brain and 20-minute conversations with friends during which you probably haven't heard a word they've said is occupied by that sole person of interest, there is scientific evidence to support that you're insane. Uh, I mean, uh, experiencing a normal stage of love. I have a theory of love called the triangular theory of love. And the basic idea is that love has three components. The first is intimacy, which is how well you communicate with the person you love, how close you feel to them, how much you trust them, how much they trust you how connected you feel in general. The second component is passion, uh, and that's just how much longing you feel. It's uh, sort of like, I can't be without the person, I just think about them all the time. And the third component is commitment, and that is that you've decided you're really in this relationship for keeps. It's really important to you. 
And the basic idea of the theory is that different combinations of these components give you different kinds of love. So for example, uh, if you were to have intimacy plus passion, that would be romantic love. Uh, if you were to have intimacy plus commitment, it would be what I call companionate love. It's more like a good long-term friendship. If you had passion plus commitment without intimacy, it would be foolish love because you're committing yourself on the basis of feeling really excited about someone without even getting to know them. And if you have all three, I call it complete love. This passionate stage of a relationship is the one on which Western societies place so great an emphasis, so much so that people refuse to marry without it. In fact, some people marry with only this component in mind. If we're lucky, this passion will last to some degree, usually after 6 to 24 months. Feelings of intense euphoria dissipate to a normal degree, which is actually beneficial for your productivity and your sanity. But what if this love-crazy component lasted indefinitely? And what if it went unrequited? This actually occurs in 5% of the population who suffer from a condition known as limerence. Patients recount feelings of intense grief following a breakup, characterized by chest pains, heart palpitations, insomnia, lethargy, and an inability to consume food. Albert Waking, a leading expert on limerence and professor of psychology at Sacred Heart University, defines limerence as an involuntary an incessant state of compulsory longing for another person. While many experience intense euphoria and the release of dopamine, oxytocin, and elevated levels of testosterone and estrogen at the beginning of a relationship, these hormone levels eventually return to normal after 6 to 24 months for most people. However, those who suffer from limerence are permanently trapped in this stage of euphoria, their cognitions and behaviors turning obsessive and compulsive. Although recovery research on this condition is relatively inquiet, individuals can undergo a combination of medical treatment usually antidepressants, which inhibit the part of the brain responsible for obsessive thoughts, and cognitive behavioral therapy to combat symptoms of limerence. While medication and therapy show promising results, leading experts on limerence find that individuals typically suffer symptoms for three to five years. In some cases, Limerence can last for decades. Some say falling in love is hard. Arguably, falling out of it seems to be even harder for a certain small part of the world's population. 
What do you think? Which one is harder? Falling in or out of love? How long does it take for you to do it? Visit Love and Other Drugs Instagram page and leave us a DM or drop a line in the comments and let us know how you get a handle on love. We're almost at the end of the show and I'd like to suggest a movie that carries the same title of today's episode, Love Sick. It stars Matt LeBlanc, who used to play Joey in the worldwide famous sitcom Friends. Here, he's Charlie, a dedicated elementary school principal whose students adore him. But the thing is, Charlie has one tiny problem. Or maybe not so tiny. I'll let you decide on that one. Whenever he falls in love, his brain chemistry goes haywire and he transforms into a jealous, paranoid psychotic. Not surprisingly, this quirk has occasioned a troubled romantic history and an oath to date only unlovable women. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? Well, it depends on how bad or despicable you might find Charlie's behavior when he finally gives in and decides he's ready to start dating again. Thank you for listening to Love and Other Drugs podcast. Please subscribe and make sure you follow on Instagram. See you all soon, have a lovely week, and let's be in love!